0: So the scene is Coachella, 2012, Snoop Dogg, Dre, headlining, but the hits keep coming. Here comes 50 Cent, here comes Eminem, yeah, Wiz Khalifa, Kendrick Lamar, dropped a new album recently, but then who walks on stage? Anybody got me on this? Tupac. Let's see him. Tupac came on stage with Snoop and did an amazing posthumous performance. Anybody know what song it was? Hail Mary. Anybody? What's amazing about this... Yeah, you got me. What's amazing about this is this echoes an early Christian heresy. Did you know that? An early Christian heresy... And we are about to go into the book of 1 Timothy, where Paul was writing to his young protege, Timothy, about heresies. Now, why was Tupac like a first century heresy? There was this group of people called the, I guess the heresy was called the docetism. Docetism. And literally, those that propounded docetism said that Jesus was like Tupac. He was like a hologram. He was like an image that he never actually became a human and lived on this earth and dwelled as a son of God. And this teaching, if it had been uh, adopted by the wider church, would have been devastating. It would have been devastating to the gospel, it would have been devastating to the amazing work of what God had done in sending his son, of sacrificing him and coming to the cross in that way. Now, a mouthful would be to talk about some of these early Christian heresies. There was Arianism, there was Docetism, Valentinism, which was a type of Gnosticism. You've got Martianism, which is not about another planet. Is that Martian or Marcion? Uh, Arianism, Donatism, Pelagianism, greatest hits. Alistair McGrath lays out these were the big ones that were the types of heresy that came through the ages. But why does that matter to us? Why does that matter to Soma, Culver City, 2,000 years later? Well, it's because some things never change. It's because the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy 1,900 years ago, however many, is totally relevant to our context now because we are still susceptible, just as the early church was, to false doctrine sneaking in, undermining the truth of the gospel and its power in our lives. It's transformative power for ourselves and for the community. So over the next few weeks as a community, we're going to be going through this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy called 1 Timothy. And we're going to be looking at the various themes that this brings up. Really, it's not... Only about false teachers, I mean that's sort of the driving context of the letter, but we'll get into other topics as well Basically how to govern the church, how to live the life of the church, taking care of um, the widows, how to treat older and younger women How to create elders and deacons, um, how to honor them These are all issues that are going to be coming up over the next few weeks And I'm excited to explore these with all of you and to help us as a community Know what it looks like to build on the right foundation of the gospel So that we don't fall into these devastating heresies So the way that we're going to do that today is by looking through the first 11 verses of this letter, and I'll try to do some of the upfront work of giving context, because this is a new study for all of us. And the way we're going to do this is first we're going to look at uh, a friendship, and then we're going to look at false teaching, and then we're going to look at fruit. So it's three F's. You guys got that? Friendship, false teaching, and fruit. So we're going to start at the beginning of the letter, which... Although it seems so cursory, it actually provides a lot of really important information as we understand where we are and what we're learning about. Right off the bat, it's the customary kind of greeting that you see in all these letters Paul writes. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So I know a lot of you spend... Uh, a lot of time in the church, you grew up in it, saying Paul makes perfect sense to you. But for those of you who aren't well-versed in the different characters and people that come through Scripture, Paul is uh, a crucial figure in Christianity. He was the individual who wasn't really with Jesus when he was alive as one of his, his apostles. But on the road um, to Damascus, he was, uh, had this divine intervention where he had been persecuting the church. He actually was a a Pharisee. He was a member of the Jewish class that was trying to repress Christianity. And yet on the road to Damascus, Jesus intervenes, strikes him blind, and takes over his life in a very surprising way. And Paul will later point out that if God can get to me, he can get to anyone. Because Paul was actively persecuting the church. And then as you follow Paul's life, he's really the person that God has ordained to bring the message of Christianity beyond the Jews. He was the apostle sent to the Gentiles. And it was through that that the entire world was reached, which was a promise throughout Scripture. That's a very small nutshell of who Paul is, but he's bringing up his authority right off the bat in this letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And as we'll learn, there was some doubt over authority in this community. Um, we'll discover that the, the church where he's writing, where Timothy is now placed, is that in Ephesus. And so we'll learn about the, the people who were there. And so Paul's asserting his authority. He's saying, I am an apostle, which sometimes the word apostle is used in a more general sense. But Paul here is surely um, pointing more towards the, the kind of capital A type of apostle, the, those set aside by Christ as his followers. Paul kind of backfills in and becomes an apostle in that sense, a leader of the church, one of the main leaders along with the, the 12 that were with Christ. And Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't say just Paul the apostle, but he, he says where his authority comes from in the letter, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. So Paul's not relying on his own authority. He's saying, this is coming from Christ. And that's important for us to understand too. This isn't just a personal side message. His authority and the power of these words comes from God himself. So who is Paul writing to? It's Timothy. Timothy. Now Timothy um, was an individual who uh, became a follower of Paul. He became um, a disciple in a way. Paul was his mentor. They traveled together I think around 52 AD, maybe they started spending time together in Macedonia. And you would actually see Timothy going to the different churches or the different churches that were being planted throughout the region. Um, if you read through the New Testament, many of the books of the Bible are actually letters written by Paul. And many of those actually list Timothy as a co-author. Which, as I was preparing for this, I was actually kind of shocked. Because I think I just gloss over that. But if you look at Um, several different letters, if you look at 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philemon, they all have uh, Timothy listed as, uh, right there in the beginning, from Paul and Timothy. And even as you look at the words that Paul is using here, he says, Timothy, my true child in the faith. So Timothy is really Paul's um, number one guy. He's the guy that he's really setting up and he's saying he's my child in the sense that Timothy is most like Paul of the people that he's been leading to sort of bring the work of the church forward. He's the one that he's entrusting, and that's really what this letter is about. It's about Paul entrusting the work that he started in this church in Ephesus to his protege, to the the guy that he believes would be the best person to come in and do this work with him. And so we see here... Um, a letter that's directed towards an individual, so it's a little different than a lot of the other letters, even the letter of Ephesians, which is the same community, because here it is directed towards Timothy. But I think the best reading of how to understand a letter like this is that Paul had two audiences in mind. Certainly some of it is directly at Timothy, but he's aware that it's going to be read, and he's aware that it might actually supply more authority for Timothy, so that um, as he's working in this community, he will be able to, to point to the fact that he was in charge by Paul, basically, and as we learn about Timothy through the letter and just through some other clues throughout Scripture, we actually learn that even though he was most in Paul's mold of his followers, um, he had some challenges as well. He had maybe had some health problems. Paul directs him at one point to take some wine for his stomach. He um, appears to be perhaps a little bit of a timid guy, so he wasn't that in-your-face kind of leader. So Paul admonishes him at times to to um, kind of step up. Um, and also, uh, he's a young guy. He probably started following Paul in his teens, and he's been with him for over a decade now, but he still is young, and I'll admonish him in a couple places, don't let people look down on you for your youth. And I kind of appreciate that sometimes, too, as an elder that maybe doesn't look that old. Um, don't look down on me for my youth, guys.
1: <laughs>
0: so, and I'm not that young. I'm almost as old as Timothy was. Um, okay, so... What's really interesting as we go through the New Testament is there's little clues scattered throughout because, as I mentioned, this is a letter to the Ephesian church, and so I thought it'd be really helpful for us um, to go back. We went through the Book of Acts a couple of years ago, um, but to see what was going on here, what was the context of this, so we can go to Acts twenty. And they can see kind of Paul's parting words as he had spent about three years in Ephesus, which was the longest of any place where he ministered. So he spent a ton of time there. And then as he was leaving them, he had some concerns. There were some riots there. There was already some issues as he was leaving. Acts twenty, twenty-five says this. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So Paul's saying, you know, I'm leaving. You can't count on me anymore. Therefore, I I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's addressing overseers, which is the same as elders or pastor. He's addressing the leaders of the Ephesian church. uh, To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. I love how you can hear... Paul's heart pouring out, the tears that he wept over these people, the time that he spent with them, his just imploring them to, to watch out. it seems that he was already aware of the seeds of what would be to come, which was false teachers in the midst of the Ephesian church, which is the second part of what I wanted to share with you this morning, is looking, starting in, in verse 3 about what was going on as Paul addresses Timothy and writes in the letter. He says, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now Paul doesn't name names here, I think he does a little bit later, but he's Going back to the same conversation with Timothy, what is Timothy's charge there? Why is it so important that Timothy go there and take a stand? It's not wolves from the outside who are penetrating this community, it seems. Our best guess is that there was a number of house churches in Ephesus at that time. And so Timothy is kind of going in to be more of a a regional overseer, in a sense, um, to, to bring some order in there. And there's some of these elders, some of these teachers that have now started to go in a different direction. Um, Paul doesn't supply enough for us to nail down what the exact nature of this heresy was of what was going on at the time. It looks like there was some almost Gnostic elements, which I don't really want to get into the full details of what that is, but it's sort of a dualism. It's um, very influenced by Hellenism, which was the Greek thinking of the time. But it's clear that there was also a Jewish element as well, because in Titus, which is a similar letter that Paul writes to another uh, community, there was this Jewish element that was um, coming in and and influencing the teaching that was done. And Paul was very clear in Acts about that he had given them the true gospel. And now... We're hearing about things, um, endless genealogies, myths, and speculations. So scholars have tried to piece back together, what did that mean? What was endless genealogies? And apparently, um, there's something called the, I think it was the Book of Jubilees, where um, different scholars and rabbis would take parts of scripture and just start widely veering into almost fictional territory. They would take some clue and build a whole narrative on it. And those stories would start to get... Codified and put together um, in the Agata and to the point where it was being taught in the temples somewhat regularly. Um, that was one aspect of the teaching that as people fixated on that more and more, now they weren't looking at the truth of the gospel. They were, they were veering into that other territory. Um, or another type of teaching at that time which was happening was um, wild allegories. So you would take some symbol um, and just completely turn it into something that the text really doesn't support at all and unfortunately it's very susceptible to the agenda of the person who's bringing it Um, so like I said we're not able to pin down the exact nature of what was going on there but the idea that it was speculations it was genealogies it really wasn't um, the type of teaching that Paul had left them with that he had charged them with they had gone into other areas and we'll learn about the consequences of that shortly But it goes on in verse 6 certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So we learned about what the teaching, the content of the teaching was, but now we're learning about who the people were who were bringing this false teaching. They were people who were perhaps power hungry, who were more worried about getting prestige and control and influence than they were about the gospel going forward. And so many of you, as I look out, I know are leaders in our community, and this is such a good caution for us as well, as we think about, what is it that drives me to lead the people of God? Am I being driven by the same types of motivation that Paul charged the Ephesians with, or is there something else there? Is there something else that I want people to listen to me? Is there something else that I want to have control? And it's always a good check to have into ourselves, and you can start to see what happens if, you maybe are going in the wrong direction. Maybe you're a, a quarrelsome person and you like to have debates. You like to get into the finer points of doctrine. You start having vain discussions with people where the result of your discussion, maybe you end up winning, but what did you win? You lost a friend and you really didn't bring them over to your side in a way that was meaningful. You just created space in between you. Um, that's the type of thing that was apparently happening in this community. And we get other clues for the nature of the heresy that was going on here um, that are sprinkled throughout the letters that Paul writes to this community as well as to uh, Titus, who was another protege. In 1 Timothy 4.7, these teachers are called godless. In 6.20, they chatter. In um, chapter 6, meaningless talk. There's another letter that Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus where he calls these individuals foolish and stupid. Um, In Titus, he says, guilty of foolish controversies in chapter 3. In verse 4 of this letter, Paul says they're propounding old wives' tales. He says they're hypocritical liars with, with a seared conscience. They understand nothing in chapter 6, and they're rebellious against the truth. So Paul is not sugarcoating here what he wants to happen. He's kind of wanting to clear out the problem. And this is important, as I said, for those of us who are leaders, and just as we care about the church, I think so often we are very concerned with not rocking the boat, with not hurting feelings, to the point that we might be willing to allow someone to penetrate our community and have a lot of influence that might drag others away. And so it's an important charge, particularly for the leaders in the church, for the elders, for the missionary community leaders and DNAs, that we remember that it's watching out for this type of teaching is something that Paul did vigorously. Now, of course, there's tact in that. And so we're sort of taking the, looking at the more extreme. And what does it look like to identify? Apparently, it was a pretty extreme case here. But he's not sitting on the sideline or just trying to appease these people or trying to convince them, well, if you could just say it this way, then you could keep doing what you're doing. Instead, he's charging Timothy to to make sure the truth is what's being guided towards and not just protecting people's feelings. So I think that's something that we want to make sure as a community that we're doing as well. Um, And it's honestly a hard line to find. It's something that takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of prayer to be able to think about what is going on here. Is a person speaking out of a place of pain? that I can minister to them in, or are they speaking at a place of wanting to take sheep and wanting to take people away with them to their destruction? These are the concerns that Paul has. Now, as I was preparing for this um, conversation, I was extremely excited to have a conversation with all of you. I'll give you a definition first just to help. I've been using this word heresy, Um, quite a bit. And I I mentioned Aleister McGrath. He wrote a book called Heresy, and he defines it this way. He says, a doctrine that ultimately destroys, destabilizes, or distorts a mystery mystery rather than preserving it. Um, And he explains that heresy is not just unbelief. Heretics are often confessing Christians who threaten the church from the inside, and usually even unintentionally lead people into unsafe theological pastures. So, There are certain people that have this malicious intent, which are heresies as well, the wolves. But there's also people who might be propounding heresy unknowingly. So that's also a type of heresy. Uh, But the conversation I want to have with all of you, and I'm really hoping that we can put our thinking caps on and come up with some ideas for our context, for Soma Culver City, for the church in the West, for your lives, of where do we see these false teachings, these heresies, cropping up amongst us? Where are the risks? And if it's your first time here, we let you talk. I think for me, I see in our culture
1: just, and even feel a lot of times seeping into my own heart, this belief that we haven't actually done anything with our lives that could rise to the level of
0: offending the creator of the universe. Like, our lives actually aren't, like, we haven't actually sinned. And if we reduce sin to a well, uh, some system of morality that doesn't have bearing on our lives anymore, rather than seeing it as actually turning our backs on a good king who only ever gave us everything that ever we could ever want or need, then it becomes really easy to say, "I, I'm not actually a sinner, and sin isn't actually a problem." Which I think, as we talk to our friends, as I talk to my friends, like none of them are living in a reality of feeling any weight of sin they might feel that weight in other areas like anxiety and guilt, but it's, they wouldn't equate that to sin. Hmm. Yeah, so Jerry's talking about how we downplay and minimize sin so often to the point where we don't feel the weight of it, and I wonder if that was a big component of what was going on in Ephesus, because as we get further in this chapter, we're going to see um, Paul talking about the law and about the effects in people's lives, and when he talks about it, it's no small thing. Sean?
1: I'm just wondering... Um... The whole thing with sin is that we're downplaying sin, but have we put, kind of been cobbled into downplaying sin by the idea that we shouldn't be judging people for their sin, you know, the idea of love the sin and not the sin. So have we become too quiet about calling out the sin because it's not PC?
0: Yeah, I think that dovetails with what Jared said. Not only do we do it to ourselves, but then we start inviting others into that sort of misunderstanding that sin is not serious. Um, by just being, like, oh, it's not a big deal, like, or just... Starting right off with that you're forgiven and not understanding the gravity of offending the holy God of the universe.
1: Where do we draw the line with that? How do we find that place where we can talk comfortably about someone's sin? You have to, put, I think you have to talk, talk about your own sin if you're going to talk to someone else about their sin. I
0: think that's a good point, Ashley. Uh, it reminds me of the Galatians, uh, one of just kind of the is it by faith or is it by works
1: of the law? He talks about did you receive the Spirit by works of having been gone by the spirit, are you now being protected by the flesh and so kind of that that push and pull of feeling like okay yeah I know he died for me but now I gotta do A, B, C, D and, <clears throat> and, and, and so yeah just that, that kind of that
0: Jewish kind of like working for your salvation I yeah I think we see that in a lot of faiths and certainly a lot of strands of Christianity as well as we know it. And then the truth that God continues to be active and that it's actually him who changes us and makes us more holy, it's him that does that work, is lost and we think it's, it's on us and then we're crushed by that weight and it's kind of a side note or about the, the God saving, it's back on us. I'm sure there's a fancy theological word for that. Um, I think one like, big
1: thing in our culture that, that can be easily seep into our church is, this idea that the whole meaning and purpose of life is to find out who you are and then express that. So it's like, like who is your deepest self and then express that, which sounds nice, but like the Bible actually diagnoses that as like the problem of humanity, mm. that we we truly are as against God and we will inherently reject Him. So, but like I've heard that language kind of come into like all through well through our culture, especially for the, even into the church of like like okay it's, it's really you to find out who you are and really express that but really it's
0: like Christianity is a denial of self you know yeah so he's talking about that cultural urge to like find your best self or like who you are like I'm, I'm out to find myself I'm on my gap gear or whatever to find <laughs> myself uh, what, what's amazing about that I mean I'm reading um, with a couple guys Tim Keller's latest book and he talks about how like how selective we are when we do that like we were like oh well the part of me that gets really mad at my wife and the part of me that like, I, that's not my true self that's something else but like, that's the same urge you got in you how is that not your true self <laughs> anyways Pete well
1: St. Paul to me was undoubtedly the second most important individual to the growth of all of Christianity the first being the fact that Jesus Christ is God and rose from the dead amen If that were not true, nothing else would be. Um, For several centuries there, the Christian Church, very possibly, may have been called Catholic. And around about the 11th century, uh, the the, the,
0: the Eastern Church, church or the Catholic,
1: in the Constantinople area, had the first major schism, and then there was two Christian Catholic churches. And around about the early 15th or 16th century, other people were having the Roman Catholic Church had uh, had things going on that brought about or fed into a um, protestation about the status. And unfortunately, St. Paul wasn't there and things were going wrong. So the church brought itself upon itself where it split up and came to many other areas right. going back to the 4th the, the, the century when Emperor Constantine he decided what was it and nothing else was it for the Christian church so jumping back and forth to the 15th century again 16th century the Roman Catholic church pretty much as a Catholic myself but upon itself uh, the atmosphere or the conditions that permitted other good Christians to break away in good faith. So, in the first century and again in the 15th century there are people or 16th century there are people of good will who, who did go off in different directions and they weren't always really, really they, they weren't always really bad they had the then the right.
0: and then Yeah, I mean I think that's a very good illustration the fact that this isn't new thing. It's happened throughout the centuries, and it took councils to correct some of these things. That's where we get like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Council of Nicaea. These are corrections of the different heresies that people kind of went off on. I hope.
1: I think just to what Josh was saying, like, that God wants all of our dreams to come true. Like, Mm. everything we could imagine for ourselves, like, God wants that for us, yeah. rather than like, us wanting what God wants of us. You know what I mean? Like, we... We're just kind of convinced that our like perfect image of ourselves is like what God wants ultimately for us to
0: accomplish. Yeah, that's God's highest aim is to fulfill our kind of pet desires rather than our wanting His desires.
1: Yeah. See. Um, the, the modern Platonism of that God isn't interested in this world. That all He wants is just to get us off the burning ship of Earth and go to heaven.
0: hmm
1: The restoration of the world isn't His
0: goal. Yeah. Absolutely, thinking that God doesn't care about anything other than just getting people to heaven. Thank you. more, Katie? Um, oh, Amy. Yeah. All right. name it and claim it's kind of what Hope's talking about, but you're actually you're like doing the work yourself almost in that by like praying hard enough or putting positive thoughts or the secret would be a type of that similar heresy. Alright, so... I think we could keep going and I hope this is a conversation that keeps going for us. I think it would be fruitful in our missional communities to spend time thinking not just generally and abstractly about these concepts but maybe about how some of these things have seeped into our life shared together or into our own hearts because that's where the real work is for us here. It's not just to speculate on what someone else might be doing. Um, I had a couple of others that I wanted to mention. As I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about how we have really said, you know, we're a family of missionary servants. And I think we have a, a ability to slip into a type of heresy as we become very unbalanced in these areas. We can be all about family to the point where we forget about our identity in these other areas. And we'll forget about a, really an aspect of God and who he, he says we are. We could be out serving all the time and caring for people, doing the San Michelle homeless serving that we do once a month with a few people where we serve and feel really good about ourselves, but we're never actually telling anyone about the greater hope of Christ. Or we're just focused on family and we're taking care of the people that are amongst us, but we're becoming inward to the point where we don't share at all. Or we're only sharing and we leave those people behind. Lately, we've had so many people Come to Los Angeles and join us as a community, which is amazing. And it's an important task of the church to care for you, um, to have people, leaders that are capable of discipling and of shepherding you. But if that was all we ever did, we would fail you even in those things, because part of shepherding and discipling is helping you to grow into a life where you get to be a missionary. And so even unbalanced in those areas is a type of sort of uh, heresy that we can slide into. And I think we've talked some about legalism a lot in the past, or the... Counterpoint of licentiousness, of just letting you do whatever, having free license. I think the the liberal church in America has sort of added to um, the sola scriptura, the idea that scripture is all important, and said, well, reason is also very important, so how you feel is also important, so if you don't like what scripture says there, then it probably doesn't say that um, kind of a thinking. And these are things that I see going on right now amongst us, and there's some that are more clear-cut, like Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, which still hold up a book that has the same words as this one but doesn't mean the same thing and it has some additions that affect it pretty drastically. These are things that are going on amongst us and as we've been saying this has always been happening. So we'll shift our focus finally to the fruit, the fruit of what was happening in Ephesus um, and the fruit that God is hoping um, comes from the not false teaching, the true teaching. So um, there's a list. It starts off in verse 9 and I'll just kind of lay these out for you because this is the result of what was happening in Ephesus. Paul is telling Timothy, this is what I see going on there. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, Perjurers. Now, if anyone else has kind of got a little nervous as I said, homosexuality there. We're not going to spend a ton of time today on that topic, um, but I'll explain why I think this is part of uh, what Paul's trying to demonstrate here. And we can touch on that um, as his illustration, because I think what's really amazing, and you see these types of lists elsewhere in Paul, but essentially what he's doing is mirroring the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And he's going through and basically demonstrating in specific terms ways in which this community has gone sideways on these commands from God. And he makes this interesting statement about the law being there for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners. And we don't have time to go through the, the mapping of each one of those of having no other gods before God or having no idols or adultery. If we talk about the homosexuality. That's a component where he's reflecting on the sexually immoral within maybe heterosexual relationships but also amongst homosexual relationships. So basically God having this vision for what a marriage is and deviation from that um, going on in this particular context. And then um, enslavers, liars, perjurers, um, even murder being referenced there in a way as far as those who strike their father or for murderers and then the fathers and mothers respecting your parents. So Paul is going through and demonstrating what's happening now as a result of these teachers in Ephesus. And this is really challenging for us, I think, because it's easy to turn around the Ephesian church and say, well, yeah, you guys had some serious problems. Man, you guys must be off track. You must have false teaching. But I think the challenge comes for us when we sit here and say, well, what if I applied that scrutiny to myself and with the community around here? Um, and I think that's a tension that Paul's inviting us into. I think he's urging us to look very um, directly at what's happening amongst us because he ends up saying that this is fruit. This is the result of what's happening. Um, Jesus had the same the same concept. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That same... Uh, Metaphor that Paul was using. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. If heresy is the cause of... For these things happening, then what is the solution? Is it perfection? Is it getting the Ten Commandments right? Is that when we know we're not doing the false teaching anymore? And I think Paul, he's clearly addressing a, a serious need there. And I think we should also be serious when we see bad fruits happening amongst us. We should be asking questions, what is underneath that? What is the cause of that? But Paul, as he's going through this letter, doesn't just leave it with, these are the bad people and so we need to get rid of them so then everything will be fine. He does something else instead. Um, ultimately, he gives us a picture for what the purpose of his teaching is. Um, in, in Galatians also, he gives us a picture for what it looks like on the other side. What does it look like when the fruit isn't coming from false teaching or from sin. Um, the list he gives, can anyone do the list of the fruits of the Spirit? I can either. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. So that's the tension we see here of what good fruit looks like. You would expect to see in a community where true teaching is happening, that you'd see those fruits happening as well. And Paul's not really saying that he's seeing a lot of that here, but he's given us a picture of what that is. And the purpose of Paul's teaching is, he says in uh, 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul's goal here is to bring love to bear. He's not just addressing this laundry list of sins, the the Ten Commandments being lived out in the scariest possible way, but he wants to bring to bear love on that. And he gives a picture for what that looks like um, elsewhere in Scripture. I'm sure you're all familiar with the picture of love that's Paul gives in 1 Corinthians, you've heard it at weddings. Chapter 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. In 1 John, the Apostle John gives an even more direct picture of what the the highest level of love is. He says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to take care of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So Paul is saying, this is the, the secret sauce, in a way. This is what's missing here. This is what I'm directing you towards to me. The purpose is, as I address these sins that are going on, is not just to call it the sins, but to redirect them towards love, to redirect towards uh, where those fruits might come from. Paul, as he concludes his uh, the first section we're studying here in this sort of demonstration of what the false teachers are, gives us the link on how to get from the false teaching. To the love. This is the equation for us as well. It's not just to teach better. It's not just to, to squash false teaching. It must be replaced by something else. Paul says in 1 Timothy 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. So church, that's our charge as well. It's not just to identify False teaching. It's not just to call out places where we see fruits that have deviated from that list in Galatians. Rather, we're not going to spend our time there necessarily. We're going to spend our time pointing back to the gospel, pointing back to that which results in the good fruits, that which avoids those vain discussions, that which doesn't fall into genealogies and speculations. It's our load starts, what keeps us on track. It's what helps us to see where the truth is. And Paul, in one of his most beautiful expositions of what the gospel is, wrote to this same church. This is what he's calling them back to. Ephesians 1.18, he talks about the power of the gospel. He says, The hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is a measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So that's the, the power of the gospel. But what is it? Ephesians 2, 4, but God, those beautiful words, but God when he intervenes, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. just as we sang in the first song this morning, we'll boast in nothing else. So as we see as a community, false teachings, as we see the fruits that don't align with the Spirit, that is where we turn. We turn back to the Gospel. We turn back to the hope. And Paul is starting off this letter to this community, which has been ravaged by false teaching, by ravenous wolves in their own midst. Rather than just crushing them, sentencing them away, Instead, he's charging Timothy, go back to what I told you. Go back to the truth and hang in there. Let the fruits of the Spirit emerge through that. This is a hard message for us because we're left in that tension. We're left in that tension of, what if I see those fruits in my life that make me nervous? Am I receiving false teaching? Am I astray in some way? But the hope that Paul is leaving us with is that it's not up to us, ourselves, to turn that around. That the hope is not in just in fixing your doctrine The hope is in turning back to Christ, of releasing and going back to the gospel itself. And so as we go through 1 Timothy and see all the implications of the gospel, I hope that you keep that in mind, that when you have a situation in your own heart, in your missional community, in the church, where we see these things going astray, where we start hearing about Jesus being a hologram, we start hearing that he swooned, and was just, he passed out for a little while, and he never really resurrected. We hear that he's not historically true. Whatever the teaching is that might be coming in, that we have the exact prescription, the recipe for where to go back to. And that's the gospel itself, and that's the hope that we share. It's what we celebrated on Easter. So let me pray for us, and then we'll head on towards um, the celebration of that together at the communion table. Father God, it's hard to hear words that are directed towards a community that's gone astray. Our anxieties increase as we wonder if that could be us at times, if we feel that pull and that tension. Thank you, God, that you gave this law so that we might know that need. You give us the law so that we might see the ways in which we can't do this ourselves. Thank you that we have a hope, that we have a way back, that we have eternal promise through your Son. Thank you so much that we know where to turn as we see heresies seeping in. Thank you for the leaders here who are vigilant and who love you and who love your gospel. We pray that those forces would be the ones that result in beautiful fruits of the spirit amongst us. We thank you for grace as we move towards that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul would have admonished the Ephesians to do what we're about to do right now, which is to go back to the gospel To remember the true hope, which is Christ's body broken for you, which is his blood shed for you. That's what we are celebrating at the table. We have four tables. We have bread that's out there. We take the bread and we dip it into the juice. And that's the way that we participate in and remember what Christ has done for us. That's your way today of declaring what Paul is asking the Ephesians to declare. That's your way of rejecting false teaching in your own hearts is by saying, this is the hope that I have. Whatever else I've been distracted by, right now I'm coming back to it and I have the beautiful hope of the gospel that I'm not stuck where I was, that I can come back right now in repentance and receive grace through the table. And it's something we do together because this is a community, just like the Ephesian church, that figures this out together, that repeatedly repents and comes back together. That's why we have hope together. And so if you've made that declaration in your own life, that Christ has done this for you, that that's your lodestar, then eat, drink, repent of whatever has been going on in your life if you need to. If there's someone here you need to repent to, pull them aside. If this isn't something that you've said is true for you yet, if you're maybe stuck in some sort of uh, false teaching, and maybe you realize that there's some issues there, now's a great time to think about that, to process with a friend here. You can grab me afterwards. But it's really not the time to go in and declare that about yourself until it's true. But there's so much grace here because of what he's done for us. Thank God that we don't have to do that ourselves. There's also the opportunity to give. At each of the, the stations, there's a box, which is a way that you can say, you know, God, you really are everything. You are the center. I don't need to hold on to my finances in a way that would be constricted. It's a way of worshiping him and saying, God, you've given this to me. I'm releasing it back to you for your glory. It's a way for you to worship. So we're going to be worshiping through songs as well. The band is going to play. A few more songs, so feel free to sit and pray and then move back together with people who you love, you came here with, you met this morning. It's all fine. We pray. Father, thank you so much that we can go from a hard message and immediately declare the remedy over ourselves as we go to the table. Do that in our hearts. Help us to purge the areas of false teachings which we have uh, been prone to believe. We pray that if any of us amongst us have brought in heresies, accidentally, not intentionally, or on purpose, that those would be repented of this morning. And that we'd see the, the fruits of the Spirit emerge as a result. And I thank you, Lord, as I can look at this community and I can say with such confidence that we see the fruits of the Spirit happening here, that you've been at work amongst us, that you continue to work amongst us. And we're so grateful for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.